Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have an awesome show for you today, full of stuff like Amazon Echo News. We've got a smart home staging kit. We've got fitness trackers everywhere. We've got a new Ecobee at the FCC. And our guest this week is Galad Mera, who is the CEO of Neura. And we're talking about Two things, artificial intelligence and building a data repository and how to keep it secure. So it's kind of a new model for securing your personal data. Cool. It is cool. But first, a word from our sponsor. Looking for an edge in your IoT design? Get exclusive access to design strategies, methodologies, and tools for leading-edge IoT devices by attending this year's ARM TechCon in Santa Clara, California. ARM experts and ecosystem partners will be on hand to showcase their latest technologies and answer your most pressing questions. Attendees get access to nine technical tracks, ARM technology training, expert keynotes, and two days of exhibits. Advanced registration ends October 14th. Just visit armtechcon.com. Don't miss ARM TechCon, October 25th through 27th. And now we are back with our show. So, Kevin, we've got a potpourri of stuff to talk about today. What? A potpourri. Potpourri, potpourri, not potpourri. <laughs> a cornucopia. A cornucopia, a smorgasbord. Um, mm. Now I'm hungry. So we've got all this stuff. What should we pick from first? Well, we haven't talked about the Amazon Echo in a bit, and I think we should because there's rumors of a new music service that is, and this is odd to me, specific to the Echo devices. Yeah, I thought this was crazy whack. Especially because just a few weeks ago, the Echo was like, you know what? If you want to like switch from the default being the Amazon Prime music or however you say it, yeah, you can switch to, I think it was TuneIn. No, it was Pandora or Spotify as <clears> your <throat> defaults, which I promptly did because we use Spotify. And that has changed our life for the better. Well, that's important. It, it really is. <laughs> not, not in a huge, significant way, but, you know, I was a gonna mild say. way. <laughs> My life has changed forever. I said for the better. <laughs> yes, I know, I know, I know. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of like, what is Amazon thinking here? Is it that necessary? Couldn't you just make Prime better? I'm spending $100 a month on this. Yeah, it is it is kind of strange. I mean, Amazon is known for trying different things and, and different models or different takes on existing models of services. So so the news here for folks who might not have heard, um, the word from, I think, Recode says, yeah, they, they've got information that says Amazon wants to sell a cheaper music subscription service, which is fine. Everybody's like, hey, cheaper music, that's great. But it's only going to work on the Echo devices. And that's kind of weird because you've already got, as you said, Amazon Prime Music, which is what I do use with my Echo pretty much all day long when I'm at home. Um, and I have the the Echo, the Dot, and the Dash uh, in different places for different use cases. And I'm happy with that. I'm a Prime member, obviously. So paying my 99 bucks and taking full advantage of it. But the deal here is that Amazon may do a second service that is going to cost either 4 or $5 per month. And again, it would be limited to the Amazon Echo devices. And I'm not sure I get that. Why would you... Why would you close a service, you know, not or add a add a closed service is probably the better way to say it, as opposed to you know using the more open service because 
Prime Music you can use on pretty much anything. I use it on my iOS devices, my Android devices, and obviously my Echo devices. So I don't know. I mean, it just seems odd to me. And I don't know that I'm going to pay an extra five bucks if I'm already a Prime member and, using, and, and I'm happy with Prime Music, which I pretty much am for my purposes. Well, and I pay $10 a month for my Spotify. Mm-hmm. And because they changed the default, now it's so easy. Like, it was kind of a pain to be like, play Kanye West, you know, amazing on Spotify. That was a yeah. lot. Of, that was a mouthful. But the other thing that's weird is, you know, Spotify for me and some of these other services that people can subscribe to, they go everywhere. Right. And so the limitation here is weird. Mm-hmm. And it's also like the only thing I can think of is, you know, Spotify doesn't have a huge market. So if you're Amazon and you want to work a deal with music companies to get more music, because right now not there's not a huge selection of like newer songs or esoteric songs. on Correct. Product. Correct. Maybe this is something the record companies are like, all right. You want to do this? You want to make it reasonable? Here's how we're going to structure this. And they're going to have to acquiesce to give people more variety. And these are people who may not be technically savvy or interested in subscribing to these other services. And that makes sense, except for one thing. Prime Music. They already have the Amazon Prime Music service. Um, Is that the only subscription service they have for music? Now, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I think so. So instead of coming out with a prime music that has more than the million or two million tracks that are currently available for free and included with Amazon Prime, this is their play to have a broad base of music available for subscription. But then, and that's fine, but why limit it? Maybe the price point's important. So Hmm. if their focus is on getting people to buy the Echo, and use it for and to love it right because once Mm -hmm. you start streaming music like you're like oh this just has a timer but if you're like hey for five bucks a month you also get all the music you want then that becomes a very different sales like selling point yeah i'm not Uh, i'm not saying i I love this plan i'm just no no that makes sense that makes sense and as you were saying that i was double checking myself there apparently there is no add-on prime music subscription it's just you have Prime Music with Amazon Prime, right. or you don't. So this is their take, and maybe you're right. Maybe it is to sell more Echo devices, and as they get more of those devices in hand, people will buy more things and use more Amazon services, and really that's kind of their play. So and maybe just for people who don't have Amazon Prime. I mean, I'm trying to think of there obviously are people who don't pay $100 for Amazon Prime, and for those people, if you've got an Echo, that's the question, though. How, and we don't know how many people have don't have Prime but do have an Echo. To me, it's it's got to be a small amount of the overall. But this could be them trying to push out into the broader market. I mean, mm. the Echo is turned into. I mean, even people who are not tech nerds. So my friends who just don't even think about like smart light bulbs and stuff, they're intrigued by the Echo. I don't so, talk to those people. I only you, talk to the tech nerds. <laughs> <laughs> if you like, want to be my friend, you've got to have a smart light bulb at least. That's that's I'm the kidding. bare minimum. I'm kidding. So I don't know. Maybe I'll go hang out in, in Echo or in, yeah. Echo, in Best Buy and start interviewing people. I, w- I would be curious what they think because I'm struggling to see this as a big, big play here. It just seems really, really limited and I'm not sure I understand it yet. And maybe it doesn't have 
have to be a big, big play. Maybe it's just like, you know, I mean, think about, mm-hmm. think about everybody who's building a skill for the Echo. If the Echo sold between, what, three and four million is kind of the thought process. And then imagine the overlap between those people plus people who have, like, certain connected devices. You know, it's, it's probably yeah. a small segment of the population. But Amazon's like, hey, let's do it. They won't want to leave money on the table. And if they can pick up a relatively small percentage, it's still a lot of people. So it it would add up. So, okay. I was going to say, so I am super intrigued by this smart staging kit for selling your house. I want to know, because you just sold your house. I did. How how you feel about this. So what this is, is Coldwell Banker, the real estate firm, Mm -hmm. has teamed up with Lutron Nest in August Blocks to create basically a package to stage your house um, that includes an August lock which I'm sure the realtor would love. It makes it easier to go in and out. Two Lutron connected like light switches and mm-hmm. plus the affiliated Picos and whatnot, plus a Lutron bridge. And the Nest thermostat, one smoke detector and one drop can. So that's that's what's in here. And it's basically list price. So the whole th- if you wanted to get everything, it's $1,135. Which is what it would probably cost you if you did it on your own. Yes. So there's no like super discount here. It's just there. And then they also offer professional install of all of this for $550. Mm -hmm. Sure. So. Of course they do. Yes. (laughs) So as someone who just sold their home and I left my nest behind, but I took all of my hubs, bridges, bulbs, cameras, etc. I understand why Coldwell Banker is doing this. I think, you know, they see an opportunity here and I assume they're getting the the hardware at a discount. So they're making some money there. But when I hear home staging, I think of renting stuff. Like if you stage your home with um, furniture and pictures and all that, you don't buy it and it stays in the house. You rent it and it's in there for the showings and then it goes away. This stays in the house, if I understand correctly. It looks like it. Yeah, there's I mean. You don't return it. <laughs> I'm buying it. It's getting right. installed. So, so it's, they're calling it staging, which I think they're playing with the wording here. Because to me, yeah, this is just let's make your home more attractive by turning it into a smart home with these products that you could do this all yourself. So I'm kind of kind of like meh on the idea. So you say this. I do. Right? You, <laughs> I, do. Oh, you oh, I do. I do. I do. But. We have down the street from us, somebody built a 1.3, it's a, it's a home that's being sold for $1.3 million. And in looking at the listing for this home, I was struck by the fact that they are advertising all these smart home features. So they've got like a MyQ garage door opener in there. So that's like a $129, $130 connected <laughs> garage door thing, right? right? And then they've got some Lutron switches, which are actually really common in high-end homes anyway. Right. But- those are the big selling points. So it used to be like, instead <laughs> of like advertising the granite countertops, they're like pushing this $1.3 million home with the idea that it's smart and has like a connected garage door. And I was kind of like. And that's because they're selling the feature to people who don't understand this market, the IoT market, because people who do know, like you, well, that's a $130 garage door opener. <laughs> Like, I, could, I could install that in like right. literally 15 minutes. My house did not list for a million and change, uh, but it had, you know, the nest and I could have done left some other things in there. And anybody can do this. You could have a hundred thousand dollar house and add these things. So it's people who don't yet understand 
the cost of these products. They just see, oh, the garage door can tell me when it's open and, and the camera can tell me when somebody's at the front door. This is amazing. Well, it is, but it's also not that expensive. So Coldwell Banker put out a survey in response to this, and they interviewed mm-hmm. about 1,200 people. Mm. So, and again, Coldwell Banker sells real estate, so it's important for you guys all to know their biases here. Mm-hmm. So they asked some people about how they define move-in ready, and 44% said that a move-in ready home has smart home technology already installed. 45% said a move-in ready home is new construction. My husband would totally fall in that category. These people must all be in the South. But they also said, if two homes were exactly alike, most Americans would choose the smart home, but they don't want to install the gear themselves. Right, right. So 36% of U.S. respondents believe that having smart technology is a major selling point when buying a home, but 32% said they would be scared to install it by themselves. And I think the the demand numbers for that is only going to go up as um, you know younger people who are brought up in the, the mm-hmm. smartphone age, you know, what do you mean this house doesn't have a a Nest or an August lock or whatever, you know? I think that's going to continue. Um, but I also hope that the public starts to better understand what the actual costs of these things are, and the fact that many of them are not that difficult to install, because like to pay a premium for a house, for example, because it has these things doesn't make sense to me because I can do it myself on the cheap, you know? You are a rare and special breed of person. That's a kind way of saying, well, we won't say. I, I mean, I, You're, I understand. I understand. There is a segment, listen, there's a segment of the population that doesn't want to install, doesn't want to know how these things work. They just want it there and they want it to work and they're willing to pay for it. I get that. I really do. Me too, but I would. Here's here's the Stacy Higginbotham plug, mm-hmm. guys. You can install a smart lock, even the August, in like 15 minutes. My, yeah. my daughter, who was nine at the time, helped me install it. You can swap out your switches. That's a little scary because there is electricity, but mm-hmm. especially in a home with like a neutral wire, so a relatively new home, you can install this stuff so easily. And I encourage you to try because it's super empowering. Now, if you've got two screaming kids, you're working all the time and you're like exhausted, then yeah, that may not be for you, but try it. It's awesome to be like, yeah. Yeah. I do. I see again what Coldwell Banker is going for. I still question the whole word staging, but you know what? That's a marketing thing, not a technical thing. And that's their business. So yeah, you know, I'm sure some people take advantage of it. The New York Times a couple of weeks ago had a whole article on is staging really worth it? So mm-hmm. we did not stage our home, by the way. Okay. And they're positioning this. So it's like, you know, Hey, if you plan on moving, maybe a better way to think of it is if you plan on moving, maybe you slap a fresh coat of paint, you know, on your right. house or right, you right, swap right. out your carpets. So I will give them um, some kudos though on the smarthomestaging.com site, which is where all this information is. They do say for sellers, once you sold your home, here's how you should return your smart home products to their factory default settings, which is something I remember to do uh, when I left my house. But it's easy to forget that if you're selling your house because you got a lot going on. Uh, so that, I think that's really useful. I agree. So there we go. And at some point in time, I'm going to have a realtor come on the show and talk about mm-hmm. the investments that really make a difference to buyers, because I think that yeah. would be really interesting. Solar panels do. I can tell you that from experience. There you go. <laughs> solar panels in the Pacific Northeast, not Pacific Northeast, in the Southeast Pennsylvania area. Southeast Pennsylvania. 
Okay, let's talk about, oh, I don't know, Kevin, you pick. I want to talk about this NFC ring because you like smart jewelry. I do. Yeah, so back in June or July, I forget which, I'll double check right now to make sure I get it right. Visa, it was June, Visa announced an NFC-enabled payment ring for Team Visa-sponsored athletes to use at the Rio Olympic Games. And Olympic Games are over now. Um, So what happens to all those rings? Well, they keep working, obviously. They're little ceramic rings. They look like a normal ring. And they have an NFC chip inside. No power needed. It's just using the electromagnetic fields of a point-of-sale terminal. You put the ring or your hand over a point-of-sale terminal, and you can pay for stuff You know, using your Visa card. It's all tokenized and secure and so on and so forth, just like using Apple Pay, Android Pay, Samsung Pay, etc. The thing is, they weren't just for the Olympic athletes, we find out, uh, because you can go to nfcring.com and purchase your Powered by Visa smart ring. So it's open to anybody now. And I really like, A, the look of these things, uh, B, the price, they're about 50 bucks, which isn't too, too bad. And C, the fact that, you know, it works with a very standardized system, you know, NFC and Visa's uh, payment system. So I thought it was kind of neat. I don't know if you saw these at all. They, they One looks just like my wedding ring for crown I could swap out my wedding ring because I, I think I have a tungsten carbide ring now, but I could replace it with a similar ceramic ring and have NFC. I love the idea that, sweetie, can I replace <laughs> our wedding band with a... Uh... <laughs> oh, that's, that's, trust me, that's no problem. My wife just lost her second band oh, a couple weeks ago. And she, she's going to go to Amazon and get a wedding ring, whatever. She doesn't care. So We're not I, like that. I want to like these. These are very yeah. masculine rings. I mean, I will, I, I, yeah, maybe that's why I like them more. Yep. No, I, I think that's great. So, yeah, they're 50 bucks. There's one that's 60. They look nice if you want to pay for things. I feel like they don't do much other than payment. Correct. So, you know, you're basically... They symbolize your love for mobile payments. They symbolize your love for spending money. <laughs> and, and your spouse, of course. So, with have you tried to pay for something using NFC, like an NFC product or a, a wallet, like a, your phone, without being asked to show ID? Yeah, many times. Okay. No, I'm, I'm asking because... Oh, like, so you every might, time. You're, then you just need this in your phone and you can wander around paying for many items, presumably. Well, you don't even need your phone, I don't think, with this. Do you? Oh, that's true. Because if it's if it's straight up NFC on its own and the tokens right. are in there, yeah, no, I don't think you. I don't think you need your um, your phone at all. And and to be honest, it's also not just for payments. You can use that chip to uh, unlock doors if the door lock supports that. You can share information through NFC. You can program it with that. So there's there's more to it than just payments, even. Okay. Yes, and they actually have their cheapest one, Kevin. You should get 25? 25 and it has it. I, I like that. It's like basically their prototype. Um, it is. Yeah. It looks just like it. You can see the chip. So that's the vintage model. That makes sense. And you get the, when, did we ever think we would call NFC rings vintage? I did not, but yeah. talk to me in a hundred years because exactly. when I'm, when I'm hooked up to some sort of cryonic thing. So I, I like, I like, I, I like the Eclipse. It's got that texture I, look that to is, it. That is a fancy ring. Yeah. If my husband didn't hate smart things, or not smart things, the company, just smart devices, I would probably be like, oh, what a fun gift. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. Next, we should talk about Ecobee. I got a notice on Twitter from, let's see, Duncan. (laughs) That is who he is. He's a reporter at Ostroid. So don't really know what that is, but lovely fellow sent me 
news that the FCC, he found an FCC filing that says there's a new Ecobee mm-hmm. coming out. And he's right, because we checked the FCC database. And it is the Ecobee Lite. Um, L-I-T-E. L-I-T-E. Not like light bulb. Light. Are, are you, do you want to say the word? Light bulb. Okay. Sorry. No. No apologies necessary. <laughs> um, okay. So this thing... There's not much in the FCC database. We know it works on, what, 2.4 gigahertz? So and in the 900 megahertz range, which, now which that's how it. how it talks to its sensors. Exactly. So <laughs> we were talking about this before the show. We're like, what is Ecobee doing? It's not a HomeKit version because they already have a HomeKit version. Maybe it's a sensor-free version. But then if it's got 900 megahertz support, probably does support sensors. So, yes. What is it? <laughs> so what is what does Ecobee Lite mean? We can't tell you. Because we don't know. Because we don't know. I can tell you that Ecobee recently took $35 million from the Amazon Beep Beep Fund. And mm-hmm. the Beep Beep is me trying not to say she who should not be named. So they're fun for the Echo. And it's possible this could incorporate something like the Echo voice services. Right. Which means you wouldn't need to have an echo. Like I have an echo and I tell my echo to change the thermostat by voice and it does so. Maybe this is native voice services. And that makes me wonder, maybe the touchscreen is not a touchscreen then and it's only voice control and that would be the light part. Yeah. And, and if that's true, mm-hmm. that could be a cheaper product because the mm-hmm. current Ecobee is, is it 249 I got a refurb unit off Amazon, the Ecobee 3. So I don't remember, recall what they cost nowadays. Is yours one of the HomeKit ones or? Nope. Nope. Okay. That makes nope. sense. Those were cheaper. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's about 250 Yeah. So I did find interesting, the Globe and Mail wrote up about Ecobee's funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, in their story, mentioned some great stats that I thought were useful. About a third of the Ecobee users actually link their devices to either HomeKit or the Echo or SmartThings. So I actually kind of thought that'd be a little bit higher, but that's okay. Super. And Ecobee has a 24% market share, according to NPD Group. So it's right behind Nest, and that's in the smart home. So, mm-hmm. And personally, I like the Ecobee 3 more than I like the Nest. So. Same here. I left my Nest behind at the old home, and then I put the Ecobee in here, and I have a sensor here in my office. So I'm not you know, getting too warm in the summertime on the second floor. So yes, so the point here is we don't know what it's happening, but we'll keep you apprised and something is happening. I'm going for no touchscreen. No touchscreen. And voice control only. And that that would be great because that would be, that would have to have a cheaper product because touchscreens, they cost money. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's see, what else do we want to talk about? Kevin, you choose. Uh, We got two little car tidbits we can talk about. Let's talk about cars. Mm. You want to talk about... Delphi? Delphi? Delphi. Delphi. Major car Delphi. Delphi. Yes, yes, yes. So they, Delphi, joined forces with Mobileye to develop a self-driving system. And Mobileye, if you're not familiar, um, they are the folks that I believe Tesla works with for their automatic driving abilities. Yes? Used to work with. They actually just... That's right. But yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I guess what Delphi and Mobileye are planning to do is kind of create a an autonomous driving system that any car maker could just 
I don't want to say plug and play because there's more to it than that, but essentially create that solution that will work with any car and car makers can then easily just purchase the driving system and install it into their vehicles. Yes. And as cars become computers, I think the idea of creating these commodity parts or these modular parts that Mm -hmm. computers went down and cost tremendously once we were like, hey, let's standardize on, you know, this kind of instruction set. So x86, let's standardize on a graphics card slot in different buses. So if you think about that's basically this model, and I think it makes a lot of sense. So we'll see if the car makers think so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's a smart move. All right. Anything else on that you want to say, or should we move to our next car bit? No, let's go to the next car bit. Automatic, the connected OBD port thing. <laughs> the plug-in module. <laughs> the plug-in module. So. Yeah. These are devices. Every car made after 1996 has this slot below the steering wheel, kind of down there. You can plug in something to it, and it's like onboard diagnostics. You can see data about the engine. You can tell the gas, mileage, all kinds of fun stuff. Mm -hmm. So there's companies called like Zuby, Automatic. All of them have these products that can read this data and give the data to your smartphone. So what Automatic has done, they have launched their second-generation product, which has cellular built in. And it's, I believe, 3G cellular. And what it does is it sends that data not just to you over, like when you get home or over a Bluetooth connection, it also sends, it's actually a Wi-Fi connection. They also send, now can send it wherever you are in in the world as you drive about. This is important for people who like want to see the actual car location. So if you're a parent and you want to track your kid's car or if you're an insurance firm and you're trying mm. to get discounts based on how people drive at all times. Which I do. I have a module plugged into two of our cars. Mm-hmm. Sweet. And the, really the most interesting thing from my perspective on this is that it doesn't have a data subscription. So they're It's pulling, like WhisperSync. Yes. It's like the old Kindle model. So and it only costs $30 more than the original for people who are like, what, what? So mm-hmm. it's $100 for the the non-3G and 130 for the 3G. And I don't know. I thought that was cool. I'm wondering whose data network they're using. I'm going to guess it's AT&T's. I was going to guess Verizon. Ooh. But you're right. AT&T is good for cars. Verizon's been doing some really cool stuff, though, with connected companies. Mm. So I don't know who funds them. And that is a really darn good question. So if we find out, we'll let you guys know. We will find out at some point in time. And while we're on the subject of uh, OBDB ports and whatnot, real quick, they're great for getting information, but did you know that they're also awesome for sending or pushing information? I and did not. So much as I have flashed the software of many Android devices in my time, I have flashed the software of my car using the OBD port. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's actually, it's pretty common now for um, third-party companies to create new engine mapping software that will boost your, for me, boost the turbo pressure, boost the, um, the horsepower, the torque, and so on, all done through software. And they push it through the OBD port. Huh. Yeah, there's there, the ECU or engine control unit of the car, which is all software-based, gets flashed just like you would flash a phone or a tablet. Okay, well, yeah. that's pretty sweet. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw you the curveball. <laughs> no, I, I just, I'm like, oh, I haven't thought about that. You can also tie this into if this, then that, which is fun, because then you can like track mm. your mileage and all kinds of other fun stuff. 
so, and if you ever want fun time wasting things, because everyone likes that, they do <laughs> actually offer like their blog sometimes has fun posts like who are the most aggressive drivers in America? Ooh, um, yeah, I, I'm probably on that list. So, oh, sorry. Where? That's well, why do you Where? think I made my car faster? <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, you're number one. Holy cow. Mm. So it's, it's a fun poster because they're, they're slicing it based on geolocation, but also the type of car. Mm. So cool. Yes. And the most aggressive people on highways are actually in Phoenix, in case you were wondering, believe it or not. Also on city roads, also in Phoenix. So yeah, I believe it. Been there many times and I believe it. And the chillest drivers are in Honolulu. I also believe that. There you go. Oh, and Seattle. Hmm. So I believe it in Seattle. Good Lord. Every time I drive in Seattle, I'm like, oh my gosh, you people, you're so polite and nice. What, what is happening? <laughs> but then the rare aggressive driver just like totally knocks you out of the park. You're like, what, what, where are you coming from? So, <laughs> all right. Well, that is plenty to talk about for this week's show. And we will see you next week, Kevin and I. But first... We're going to introduce our guest, Gilad Mera, who is the CEO of Nura. They make a, I don't know how to describe this. They, they provide artificial intelligence to companies. So based on data from your phone and other devices that already support their stuff, they also act as a data repository for your stuff. So he does a much better job of explaining this. It's pretty complicated. <laughs> That's why he's the guest. And that's why he's the guest. So <laughs> if you're interested in both AI and data privacy, you should definitely stay tuned. And now a word from our sponsor. Hey, everyone. It's Stacy breaking into the IoT podcast to tell you about an event in Seattle that is really going to be awesome. Are you interested in how IoT tech will change the way we discover, shop, store, and cook our food? then you won't want to miss the Smart Kitchen Summit, an event that explores the technology and design convergence that's changing how we eat, buy, store, and interact with our food. The Smart Kitchen Summit is brought to you by my friend Michael Wolf of The Smart Home Show. And Mike has created a discount especially for listeners of our podcast. Just go to smartkitchensummit.com and use the code IOTPODCAST, that's all one word, to get 10% off tickets. I'm going to be there and you should be there too. So join me October 5th and 6th in Seattle and maybe we can eat a 3D printed pizza together. Hey everyone, it's Stacey Higginbotham and we are back with the Internet of Things podcast. I am here with Gilad Miri, who is the CEO of Nura, and we are going to talk about something everybody is super excited about, artificial intelligence. Hello, Gilad. Hello, Stacy. Thank you for having me. I am so glad to have you because I am super pumped about how we make sense of all this data that's going to be coming in from us and how we make use of it. So let's start off with what you guys do so people can understand where you're coming from. Do you want to give me a quick 20-second view of Neura? Sure. So what, what it is we do, we understand human context in what we call the alternate. So anything that's not the web internet. We try to break down behavior and life into roughly 60 components, and then we allow users to share these components with their environment so the environment can be responsive. So a door lock can be sure it's locked after it realizes you fall asleep, or a light bulb can be turned on after it realizes you're on your way home, etc., etc. Got it. All right. Now, you guys first right now have an app. And I actually downloaded it, and it was fun. 
It focuses mostly, though, on health right now today. Yes? So our product is an SDK. We do have an app, but the app is used for uh, mainly either testing purposes or managing of permissions. So I just want to make sure our product is an ingredient that sits inside third-party products, and these products can then ask our SDK questions, get answers. For example, you want to know when a user fell asleep, you want to know when a user is on his way home, when the user is starting to run, and as a result of the answers we provide, the the solution can change its behavior. Okay, now this sounds kind of worrisome as a user. I'm like, God, I don't know if I want something that knows all of this information about me telling other devices unless I let it. So I completely agree. First of all, you really need to understand the value, right? So if you uh, believe that a door lock that makes sure it's, is, it is locked after you fall asleep is beneficial to you, and you would like to have this functionality, then the question is how to make it the most secure and safe transaction that you can possibly make. But I do agree. I do agree that the first thing we must convey to the users is what is the upside they're getting. So can a music player bring me that special music when I'm running or when I'm running the phone can stop its pushing notifications and not disturb me and the car will realize that they just finished a run and cool down the car. Can all of this be beneficial to me? And if so, let me share these pieces of my life with these solutions so that they can personalize themselves to me. All right, Khaled. How are people going to use this? What is this going to look like if your vision of the world comes to fruition? I believe, again, that similar to the Internet, um, devices and mobile experience can really personalize themselves to our needs. So, again, think of uh, chronic disease management, right? Can life be connected with my diabetes results or my hypertension results? And the answer is definitely yes, right? A glucometer today is just a sensor. It takes your blood glucose, puts it on a table over time. But what if the glucometer can realize that I just woke up and I'm on my way out of the home and now would be a good time to interject, measure yourself, or understand that I am about predictively to start a run and I haven't measured myself for the last three hours uh, and so I'm at risk and advise me to eat an apple or measure myself. Right? Now, this glucometer changes its behavior to me versus to you versus to a third person and takes care of me, right? And this can happen tomorrow. Technology can make this happen tomorrow. You can think of any type of medical uh, solution where, for example, they want to provide you with insight. So today what's happening is you have six thousand insights and they just throw some at you hoping that they will work. But if, what if this solution realizes that I'm a bad sleeper and so the insight should be tailored to my need versus I'm a worst exerciser, and so these insights need to be tailored to my need. And so now, again, you and me might get very, very different experiences from this device or solution, and so on and so forth. I really believe that the power of context, the power of AI is relevant tomorrow and not necessarily, you know, a decade from today. Awesome. This feels almost like magic. So talk to me about how this happens and what do my devices need to know and how is this set up? So first and foremost, it's important to uh, realize that this has happened in the web internet, right? If you and me plug a word into Google, 
Google tries to understand what is it I mean when I say gift and you mean when you say gift and personalize the results. When you and me go into Amazon, we get a different homepage. And why is that? Because Amazon tries to increase our conversion to make it more relevant to us. In what I call the outer net, mobile experiences and the Internet of Things experiences, we're not there yet. But again, this whole space is much more at its infancy versus the Internet. From our perspective, you're right that we are focused on health and wellness. And for example, we work with a glucometer. So think of a glucometer that realizes that you're about to start a run or you're about to enter a restaurant. And as a result, advise you to measure yourself or give you some insight around you should run, you shouldn't run. You know, medical adherence, instead of reminding you to take that medication at 8 a.m., MediSafe, who's another customer, can remind you to take that medication before you leave home predictively or just after you wake up, which for you might be 6 a.m., for me might be 10 a.m. And so, again, these little things that will take this outernet into a, a, through a same evolution as the internet went through, and similarly, we'll experience better engagement, better conversion, better personalization. Okay. So now many of these examples that you've kind of mentioned, I see one company that has the data and makes this change in their individual product. What's different about the Internet of Things is there's lots of products and we're trying to get them to work together. So I'm curious if that changes how you build something for this. So I think when you want to transform a solution to becoming a smart solution, you've got all kinds of ways to do it. Some ways really require subject matter expertise, right? It really relates to the door lock, to the oven, to the whatever, the, the light bulb. But some of them are more horizontal in nature. And these relate to what is the human context, right? When you talk about smart car, for example, typically what you say is you talk about infotainment system, you talk about telematics, you talk about autonomous driving, all of these are around the car. The fact that you are sleep deprived, right, when you enter the car, or you just finished a run and you're sweaty when you enter the car, can impact the car behavior, but has nothing to do with the car. It's about understanding the person. And so cars or car players are really focused on what they do best, which is their own device. And what we do, the, the philosophy we advocate for is, let's understand the human in a very holistic manner, and then these understanding can benefit multiple facets. So it's more of a sort of standardization protocol play than an actual subject matter expertise. Got it. So then I would think that a company like Google or possibly even Amazon or Facebook that has a lot of information about me as a person already might be a, in a more powerful position to do this. No doubt. I mean, you can bet that Google is not interested to cool down my room. Right? This is not why they buy thermostat companies. They are interested in data, right? And so they're doing, they're being very proactive to get this sort of what, again, what I call the outernet, right? Things that are not webby. It's definitely, you know, one of the alternatives. Specifically, we feel, you know, our technology is not only superior, but the model by which we work, which gives the user full transparency. And I think this is the model we advocate for. Forget Nova. Just think about this amount of data is now being collected and aggregated around you. And you want the transaction of it to be very transparent and very limited to serve your needs, which is not the Google model of doing things or the Amazon model of doing things, which is 
let's give you something free and sell your life to a Nike for an ad. Okay, so how does this how does this model work, and how are you guys collecting all this data about me? Again, the way we advocate for this new data economy is to provide transparency to the user. Right? If you want the door lock to be locked after you fall asleep, it makes it makes sense for you to let the door lock know that you've fallen asleep, and in exchange, get that value of the door being locked. So you need to understand that. What the door lock doesn't need to get is the fact that you are waking up or the fact that you are this sleep quality versus that sleep quality or how much time are you sleeping and who are you sleeping next to. All of that is not interesting for the user to let the door lock know. If the door lock connects to just a sleep sensor, then they get all of that, right? And they get the burden of only listening to a sensor and not utilizing an algorithm that listens to multiple data channels. So... This is definitely the model that we advocate for. The way we do it is our core skill set is essentially algorithm. We collect data for multiple channels, up to 100 channels, and we take all of that data, put it into an algorithm that tries to figure out what does this picture mean, right? Does it mean that the user fell asleep or not? In the falling asleep example, it can be anywhere from sensory activity like accelerometry, sleep sensing, motion sensing, uh, mobile elements like is there light, is there sound, are you charging, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, up to pattern elements. Is this your home? Is this where you typically sleep at at your home? Is this the time you, fall, you typically fall asleep at, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Whatever we get will fit into a very agile algorithm that will spit essentially one or zero. Okay. And then you sell your SDK and a company would say, hey, I want the results of this sleep data. Correct. I want to be triggered. For example, when the user falls asleep, wake up, or about to wake up predictively, etc., etc., and as a result, I'm going to change my solution. I'm going to turn off the light, lock the door, remind you to take a pill, whatever. But again, if you use our solution, user must be involved. So the door lock will not come to Nura and say, hey, Nura, I want to know when Stacy fell asleep. It will go to Stacy and say, hey, Stacy, I want to make sure the door is locked. After you fall asleep, in exchange, I ask that you will let me know. And Stacy, understanding the value, will approve the transaction. Got it. So where are we today with the deployment of, we'll call it AI in the outer web? I think it's very initial. I think what you see is that, and the reason we are approaching health and wellness is, what you see is the space is siloed. Some elements in the space are more evolved, some are less. For example, in smart home today, people are still very focused on the basic value proposition, right? When I tell you to lock, you lock. When I tell you to unlock, you unlock. That's it. If you can do that, I'm good for now. And the space is not even there yet. In medical, for example, you have dozens of glucometers, dozens of mobile apps today, and now they're seeking for that differentiating layer, right? Okay, I, I can give you some basic value proposition, and now let me personalize it. Let me uh, make it more intuitive to you. So it's very similar, again, to the Internet. You used to have a dumb portal. One website fits all. You know, it evolved, evolved. Now your website and my website will not, or the same website will not behave to you and to me in the same manner. Are you concerned that when people think about AI, they still think of Skynet and the end of humanity? And I would love to get your response to that, because... Do you feel like we're anywhere close? Should we be worried about this, or are we still so far off? So technologically, I think we'll fall off. Uh, technologically, I think 
even if you scrape the boundaries of technology today, understanding human behavior, predictive human behavior is extremely difficult. I do think that the way data is being handled is something of concern, and I think you see it. You see how the market responds to it, right? IoT is not about what websites do I surf. It's about my home systems, my car systems, my health systems. It's a different set of data. And I think we have an opportunity to, again, change the rules of the game with this type of data. But honestly, I think AI is being utilized as a buzzword and creating expectations that are not really real. And I think we're potentially getting going to get hit by that because two, three years from now, experiences are going to get better, but you're not going to see any Terminators roaming the street. That's good. Yes, the Terminator would probably shoot me before I got in here. <laughs> so you mentioned that we have a chance to change the way we handle this data. To me, it feels like a lot of the, that horse is already out of the barn. So I'm kind of curious why you say that and how we can, I don't know, put the horse back in the barn. So I agree that uh, in the internet, you know, no one reads terms of agreement before they press I agree. But again, the internet of things offers a different set of data that we are not used to sharing. If you look at Apple's approach, even Samsung's approach, you see that they emphasize privacy very much. And so the Google way of doing things is being challenged. And even Google itself is taking measures to increase transparency, etc., the way I look at it is, the, is as follows. I think you have enough companies that don't deal with data, but are players in the Internet of Things, right? Samsung, HP, LG, Lenovo, their model is to give you value. You buy something from them. And they have an embedded incentive to increase that value, enhance that value, but still not sell you ads. And so you have multiple players that will at least appreciate an alternative to the Google way of doing things. And if we can present them with this alternative that is technologically good and superior, they will use that. So I think now is essentially a race for this network effect. Whoever can get with a good AI technology to enough hands uh, will set the tone. Oh my gosh, that's a huge burden for consumers because they don't, they may not understand the terms and what is even going on here. I mean, people are just as freaked out about Samsung televisions that are, you know, quote unquote, always listening as they are about, you know, Google sticking a Nest thermostat in their house. So how do you communicate that to the end user? I agree with you completely. Uh, and I think um, there is, again, a lot of um, incentive to not make this transparent to the user, right? This is why you have 50 page terms of agreement that no one reads and you expect it to sign to get whatever, a Gmail. And I do think, you know, from personal uh, experience, the the fiascos that happened so far, for example, the Samsung TV, is something that has scarred Samsung significantly, and they are proactively seeking to increase. I mean, that's a perfect example of a, a company realizing that they've done wrong and trying very profusely to change that uh, behavior. And so, I honestly think the consumer alone will not be able to fuel that movement. You need both the demand side and the supply side realizing that there is a business model in not being a spy, but in being a very diligent with how you handle data. There is money to be made and value to be created. All right. I love it. And I can't wait to see if this works out. So, Gilad, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. 
Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. And if you can't get enough of the Internet of Things podcast, please subscribe to my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things at Stacy on IOT.com. As always, we'll see you next week. Thank you.